0: Uh, that is a break that's going to end with week. But this sermon, sermon this morning, really is kind of a continuation of last week. Um, um, and let me just explain to you. Um, so, some of you have heard you me say this. Maybe if you've forgotten. And others of you have never heard me say this. But let me just say something to you about about how about how I think of preaching, how I see preaching. Uh, preaching is not dumping, dumping information on people who need information, information okay? Um, there is a content to the Christian faith. Let's be very clear about that. There is a truth uh, that, uh, that is utterly, inviolably true. It is the truth about God and what he has done in the person of Jesus Christ and what he continues to do in and through the person of Jesus Christ and through his church out into the world until the end of history and the consummation of all things. There is a truth component to the Christian Christian faith, but preaching is more than just telling you the truth. David Dixon uh, uh, is a, you may not know, David Dixon is a fairly obscure Puritan, dead and gone, one of my dead white European male friends. David Dixon said that the minister of the gospel has to be a student of two books, student of two books, the book of, book of Holy Scripture and the book of the human heart. The minister of the gospel, the preacher of the gospel, has to be a student of two books, the Holy Scriptures, the book of God, and the book of the human heart. Now, what you need to understand about preaching is that The conversation is not a one-way conversation. It's not me dumping information. It is me in conversation with you, having been given a special commission by Christ to be a herald of the glad tidings of the gospel of the kingdom. I don't do that in a vacuum. I do that in conversation, in connection with you. And the conversations that we have, the interactions that we have, beginning at about 11.20 on Sunday afternoon as we gather after worship, and which continue through Saturday afternoon and Saturday evening until we all go to bed, presumably at an early hour so that we can come here to be really engaged in what is the most significant activity that any of us ever has been or ever will be engaged in, the activity of worshiping the living God. There are six days of conversation that occur on either side of every sermon preached. And in those conversations, my heart is revealed and the needs of my heart and your hearts are revealed and the needs of your hearts. And so as we come together week by week, very poorly to be sure, very imperfectly to be sure, this is an attempt to bring those two conversations together. The conversations that express my heart and your hearts and the conversation that we have with the Word of God so that our hearts more and more are shaped by the teaching of Scripture, by the Word of God. And this conversation this week, this part of the conversation, really is a continuation of what we looked at last week in Matthew 24. So we're going from the end of Matthew's Gospel to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel And basically the question, given what we said last week, which I'll review in just a minute, in view of what we said last week, what does that look like for us? What does that mean for us? How are we to live given those realities? And what we have in these first verses of Matthew chapter 5 is an answer to that question. So look with me at Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1. And let me read these 14 verses, 15, 16 verses, whatever it is. And then we'll pray and then we'll look at them in this larger context of what we had to say last week. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Just observe from verse 1 that there is a distinction being made between the crowds and the disciples. He saw the crowds... And when he saw the crowds, he went up into the mountain, sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them his disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, be merciful to us again, we ask you as we look at your word. um, But we beg of you. I beg of you. I plead with you because of Jesus, Lord, I would be bold enough to demand of you that you not allow these words to land in our heads and stay there. But by your grace and mercy and kindness and by the power of your spirit, cause your word to have some real effect, real changing effect powerful, transforming effect in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, in the wake of this economic meltdown that we're all still very much aware of, and in, in the wake of, or within view, not in the wake of, but, but within view, these elections that are coming at us, And you know, I've got to tell you, at one level, I feel so sad for Tim Mahoney. I mean, I do. But in the wake of all of this stuff, we looked at Jesus' final discourse with his disciples. Uh, Matthew 24. And we looked at Jesus' disciples certainly being stunned to learn that their temple, this glorious, ornate, adorned temple, which was for them a symbol of their distinctiveness as a nation. It was a symbol of their relationship to God. It was the place where God's name had been pleased to dwell. It was the place where people God lived and where they believed they met God. This symbol of everything that was unique and distinctive about Israel, this temple was going to come down. Brick after brick after brick, stone after stone after stone. It was going to come down. And it was going to come down for a couple of reasons. Tragically, it was going to come down as an act of God's judgment upon unbelieving Israel. Over the centuries, tragically, Israel had repeatedly rejected the God of the covenant. And because of that rejection and because of their unbelief, the temple was going to come down, and it did come down in 70 A.D. Jesus prophesies in Matthew 24 the destruction of the temple and the fulfillment of that prophecy took place under the Roman boot in 70 A.D. Never to be rebuilt again but the reason it will not be rebuilt again hasn't been and won't be is the second reason that the temple came down and that is because the greater temple came the thing to which the temple pointed the thing which is the fulfillment of the temple and everything that has to do with the temple the greater temple came. And that temple is Jesus. And when Jesus came, He came to fulfill all that was anticipated in the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the priestly sacrificial system He came to fulfill all of the symbolism of union between God and the people. The temple veil was torn at the crucifixion of Christ, at the death of Christ. Access was given into the presence of the Father because of the finished work of Christ. Christ came as the sacrifice anticipated by all of those Old Testament sacrifices so that the blood of bulls and goats never ever again needs to be shed because the blood of that to which all of that pointed has come. And the temple... Came down because the greater temple came. And you know, you think, if I could just digress for a second, you think, well, what if all of those folks of the first century had repented, all those Jews had repented and had believed in Jesus, the greater temple? You know what would have happened to the temple? It would have become obsolete. Because it was obsolete, because the greater had come. And when Jesus came, he came not only to fulfill that mission and that part of God's purpose, but he came as a king inaugurating the kingdom that was anticipated across the centuries of Old Testament history and which, was, which found seminal expression. Here we are again, Genesis 3.15. I'm going to keep saying this to myself until I believe it. The initial promise of Genesis 3.15 is of a warrior king who would come, who would vanquish the evil one, who would overturn the works of evil and would exert his rule and reign into the whole of the earth and the whole of the cosmos so that the heavens and the earth become a theater for the display of the blessedness and righteousness and glory of God touching every area of life. And when Jesus came, he came as a king inaugurating that rule and that reign. That's why people wanted to take him by force. If you look at John chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, when they see what Jesus does, they want to come and take him by force and make him what he in fact is, the king. He's the king of glory, folks. He has come, he has inaugurated his rule and reign. And the whole of the rest of history, we look down the corridors of history to the day when he will return to finish what he started. That's where we are in history. And what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 24 is tell his disciples of that day and tell his disciples from all of history, across all of history, what life is going to be like. That for the next couple thousand years and more... (laughs) until he returns. I mean, maybe it's 10. Maybe it's 30. Maybe it's 100. I don't know. We don't know. He didn't know. Remember? I got this book in 1988. Forget. I got this book in 1988, beginning of 1988. I think Glenn must have gotten it too because he's nodding. 88 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1988. Okay? Now, to my... To my knowledge, and, and I'll tell you what was in there. I'll tell you what was in there. It was all of this stuff that was going on in the world, among other things, that were indications that the end was near. Not the least of which was the Russian bear. The bear from the north. I got a book in 1989. The title of the book was 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1989. And it it covered basically the same ground with the additional reason that we were off by a year. The reason he will come in 1989 is simply that he didn't come in 1988. Now look, folks, I'm not being mean-spirited here. I want us to understand what it is Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, that from his ascension to the right hand of the Father until his return to finish what he started, that is what history is going to look like. And we should not be surprised at wars, rumors of wars, nations rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, all of the rest, persecutions, the whole kit and caboodle. It's going to characterize the whole of human history between the advents. And then when the king comes back to finish what he started, he will crush finally, fully, completely all of his enemies, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, all of his enemies and yours. And we look forward to that day. And it's in the context of that. It's in the context of life between these two advents that we look at Matthew chapter twenty five, or Matthew five, and we ask so what difference does all of this make? How am I supposed to live? Well, again, let me encourage you to think think about what it is that Jesus announces when he comes. Look at Matthew 4.17. Just a few verses ahead of the passage that we've read. From that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven. The good news, the gospel, is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is near. Where is it? Where do you see it? Where do you see the evidence of it? If the kingdom of heaven is at hand, if it is here at hand, close, proximate, near, where do I go to see evidence of it? You go to see evidence of the presence of the kingdom in the king who announces the coming of the kingdom, the inauguration of that kingdom, and who in his life and ministry gives tons of evidence kept and preserved for us in the four gospels, tons of evidence of the fact that he is the king who was promised and that he has come. And you see that evidence manifested basically in two general areas, his heralding and proclaiming of the gospel and in his deeds of love and mercy and justice and righteousness. Truth and goodness wed in the person of Jesus, the king who inaugurates the kingdom, and he is the evidence that his reign has begun. And that's why people are attracted to him. Look at verses 23 and 24 and 25. Here is the king who has come, who has inaugurated the kingdom. And he goes throughout all Galilee. He teaches in their synagogues and proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. You see, there's the heralding. There's the teaching. There's the proclaiming. And and as he preaches and as he teaches the gospel of the kingdom, he heals every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spreads throughout Syria and they're bringing to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those who were oppressed by demons, the epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now just get, get, get a bit of a picture of the geography that's being reflected in that, in that verse. Okay? Here is Jesus the king who has come. He is the embodiment of the kingdom. What does the kingdom look like? It looks like truth and goodness. Truth. Truth comes from the incarnation of truth. Not deceit. And I don't mean to pick on Tim Mahoney. Because I could pick on myself. I'm as duplicitous. I'm as divided in my own heart as Tim Mahoney was when he ran his campaign Basing his campaign on a restoration of family values. When Jesus the king comes, the things that he says line up with his life. But it isn't just truth. Right? It's deeds, deeds of love and mercy. And so he has come and he is practicing righteousness and he is doing justice and he is teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And it's no surprise then that great crowds follow him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jerusalem to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum where Jesus based his ministry is a hundred miles in a straight line. It's a hundred miles across the Jordan, is even more than 100 miles. Do you see what's happening? The word has gotten out. Something really significant has happened here. This is not another itinerant preacher. This is not another wannabe Messiah. This is somebody who comes with truth and comes with goodness. He is the incarnation of both. And the word is on the streets. And people walk scores and hundreds of miles to be ministered to by him. And not only do they walk scores and hundreds of miles, but they carry paralyzed people across those stretches of hills and mountains and rivers and all of the rest. And it's in the context of these crowds, and the word in the text is used variously in the Gospels to describe massive crowds of people, large crowds of people, Not a small gathering, but large, large crowds of people. Thousands of people are trying to find Jesus. And they're coming from those distances. Why? Because this is different. This is unlike anything they've seen. And it's in that context that this very strange and arresting thing happens. Verses 1 and 2 that I referred to. Jesus comes apart from the crowds, his disciples, that is those who have believed in him, his disciples come to him up in the mountainside and there he teaches them. And this has to be quick. But there are three things basically in this passage that Jesus teaches them. He teaches them that he has a different emphasis. He teaches them, secondly, that he has a different evidence in mind for the presence of the kingdom. And then, thirdly, he teaches them about a different effect of the presence of the kingdom. Okay? So first, a different emphasis or a unique emphasis. Second, a different evidence or, or a unique evidence. And third, a different effect or a unique effect. What's the different emphasis? What's the unique emphasis? Jesus takes his disciples Apart, and basically, what is going on is this. Here's the gist of it Jesus is saying to his disciples as he takes them apart Look, I see what you see. You see, and I see, and you have experienced, and these people are experiencing all of these external blessings that are the result of the kingdom being present among you. People's bodies are being put back together. People's diseases are being healed. People who have been carried hundreds of miles on carts or stretchers are being restored. What is the evidence of the presence of the king and the presence of the kingdom? As you look at the crowds, those people just like you and just like the disciples we looked at last week, those disciples, everybody wants to be free of pain. You do and I do, and the disciples did. And Jesus gives evidence of his power as the king, as he restores bodies, as he heals people of their diseases. Jesus gives evidence of his power to create or recreate a pain-free world. And to that I say amen and bring it on. Because that's what you were made for and that's what I was made for. But again, in the midst of this, Jesus takes his disciples aside and says to them, there's another kind of evidence that is evidence of the presence of the kingdom. What Jesus is instructing his disciples to do is look beyond the superficial, look beyond the physical and the material, all of which is important, to look to themselves What Jesus is saying, what I want as the King of glory who has come into the world, what I want is for there to be a unique and different evidence of the presence of the kingdom. And you are that evidence. You are that evidence. You, my disciples. And so, what's the nature of that evidence? What does that evidence look like? Jesus wants a different emphasis, not an emphasis on the external and the material, but an emphasis on the internal and the spiritual. An emphasis not on the gifts of the giver, but an emphasis on the character both of the giver and of his disciples. A differing kind of evidence an evidence that is stark, that stands out, and that is not only different, but unique, a unique evidence of the presence of the kingdom. And what is that evidence? It is these beatitudes. And you've got to listen to them, folks. And if, as you listen, <laughs> you know, I've told you the Lem Barney story. Lem Barney, who was this professional football player who preached the gospel in prisons, Christian, loved Christ, Wonderful ministry among the prisons. He's preaching to a bunch of prisoners, preaching the gospel. He's engaged. They're not. He's saying, if this doesn't flip your switches, you don't have any. As I read the Beatitudes, as I read through these Beatitudes, if I'm not gripped by these things, if I'm not first as I'm gripped by them, driven to my knees, I'm not sure i got a switch. Listen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What is it to be poor in spirit? It's to be bankrupt, it's to be empty, it's to be helpless. It's to be utterly dependent upon somebody or something outside yourself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And listen to how these things hang together. This description of what it is that Christ longs for, what He has died for, what He wants to see, and what by His grace He will see in His disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit, but not only blessed are the poor in spirit, but blessed are those who grieve, those who mourn. They're not only broken, they're not only bankrupt, they're not only empty, they're not only, only helpless, us, help us, they know it. And they grieve over it. Why do I think this is talking about real, true, and deep spiritual poverty? Because you know as well as I do, it is easy literally to be poor and to be as covetous of the things of the world as are the rich. Poverty in itself is no virtue. Jesus is thinking again beyond the external and the material. And he's drilling right down into our hearts. And he's thinking about our souls. And asking us to examine ourselves. Do we know ourselves and see ourselves? Do we think of ourselves as so utterly destitute that we would in fact grieve and mourn that destitution? Not only... Not only poor, not only grieving over it, but that grief wed to that deep sense of mourning over my brokenness, my emptiness, my helplessness, produces what? A humility. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Contrast meekness with pride, just like you would contrast poverty of spirit with self-reliance. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, the contrite, the humble. But look at next, this description of this greater evidence, this unique evidence Aware of the depth of my need, of my brokenness. Grieving over my need and my brokenness. Humbled by my, by my brokenness and by need. And what is the effect of that? It is to redirect me. It is to create in me a new hunger and a different thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after what? After righteousness. And after the righteousness of the kingdom. Seek first The kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. And all of the rest of this stuff will be added to you. Poverty of spirit. Grief over the depth of my need. A humility that results from a sober examination of myself. And a complete reorientation of my heart in the direction of righteousness. What's the new evidence? What's the greater evidence? What's the unique evidence of the presence of the kingdom in the midst of the world? Strikingly, it's these kinds of things. And this new orientation, this new desire, this new longing, look at the kinds of things that are connected to it. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, are also merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Who are the merciful? Well, they're the ones who have begun to taste the righteousness that they long for, and they long for that righteousness because they have been humbled over the grief of their own poverty and brokenness and having tasted something of the mercy of God with respect to those who are broken and who grieve and who are humbled and who long for something different, they themselves become merciful. They become merciful. They become those who having tasted something give to other people. And what they give is what they first received, and the promise is that they receive even more of it. More mercy. Mercy piled on top of mercy toward those who have become merciful because they have tasted the mercy of a merciful God. And tasting that mercy has the effect of purifying their hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart For they shall see God. This sober self-assessment, this grief, this humbling that redirects me in the direction of righteousness, that inclines me to be merciful myself, it has this purifying, cleansing effect. And so in the deepest recesses of my soul, in the deep places of my heart, things begin to take place and there is a purification that is going on. And the result of all of that, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Having tasted peace with God, those who have tasted peace with God, then themselves become not peacekeepers, not peacekeepers, though they certainly are that, but peacemakers, those who move in the direction of conflict, those who move in the direction of seeking reconciliation and restoration in relationships, those who bring the peace of the kingdom of God, the shalom of God into their relationships, moving in the direction of those from whom they're estranged. And being willing to do it, even to the extent that Jesus was willing to do it. Dying to himself as he sought reconciliation and achieved reconciliation between God and man. Look, there's the external evidence of the presence of the king. There are people's bodies being restored. There are people being fed. There are demons being overpowered. There are paralytics who are having their bodies fixed. There's all of that evidence, and it's good, and it's right, and I long for it. I long for the day when those who can't dance can dance, and it's coming. I long for the day when those who can't see can see. I long for the day when those who can't hear can hear. But the ultimate evidence of the presence of the kingdom is a character that emerges from those who have taken sober self assessment, who grieve over their brokenness, their sin, the depth of their need, who are humbled by it, who have been reoriented in the direction of righteousness as a result who because of that righteousness begin to be merciful people, are purified and become peacemakers. And you know what the response of all of this is? Everybody will love you. Everybody will love you. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't love a selfless, humble, righteousness-seeking, peacemaking, merciful person? Who wouldn't? the world the world doesn't like it when something contrary to the world's self-reliance something contrary to the world's arrogance something contrary to the world's self-assertiveness comes into the world and like a light shines the white hot light of that holiness upon that self-reliance and upon that arrogance. The world doesn't like it, and so the world kills it. And Jesus basically says here what he said more explicitly in the Gospel of John, if they killed me, they'll kill you too. Why? Why? Because you're unjust, because you're unrighteous, because you're lacking in mercy, because you're lacking in compassion. No, precisely because the character of the king begins to be taken on by his subjects and the world doesn't like it. And the result is that they will kill you. But then Jesus says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about being killed. No, he says rejoice. Rejoice. You have a greater reward in heaven. You have a greater reward in me. In me, the person of Jesus. In the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who's coming back and who's going to completely deliver the whole of the creation from its bondage. And overcome all of evil and deliver you into the full enjoyment of your father's house. That's your reward. And you're in good company. If they do it to you, just think of yourself as in good company with the prophets because they did it to them as well. And so what is the effect of all of this? What is the greater effect, the unique effect, the distinctive effect? Jesus likens his disciples to salt and light. Okay? You see the progression of this thing in the midst of all of this incredible ministry activity where the king is demonstrating the goodness and the power and the truth of his reign. People's lives are being put back together, but he brings his disciples apart and says, I want to show you something else. There's a different emphasis. There's a different evidence, and the evidence is going to be you, and the effect of that will be like salt and light in the midst of the world. Salt in the days of Jesus. Salt was used as a preservative primarily. You probably know this. And preservatives preserve things that are dead. But they keep them from decaying. And light, you're to be light. What does light do? Light always stands over against and in contrast to darkness. But light does its work. It drives back The darkness, the salt preserves, and it actually adds flavor. You're a flavorful bunch. (laughs) It adds flavor, but it preserves, you see? And as light, it drives back the darkness. So what does this begin to look like? Thousands of examples. What does it begin to look like And this is what's so humbling and it's so hard. It puts us on our face before Christ and it inclines us to cry out to Christ, God, help us. We're to be salt and light in the midst of what is dying, surrounded by darkness. That's to be the evidence of the kingdom and its presence. That's to be the evidence that Christ is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. Dear Jesus, help us. What does it begin to look like? (sighs) They're not here. So I'll just use Alice and Al as an illustration of what it begins to look like for the king to reign and exert his rule and reign out into the world. It looks like a woman gladly laying down her life for her dying husband, moment by moment, And day after day and saying to him, this is my privilege. That is an evidence of the kingdom. It looks like husbands asking their wives the question, where have I failed you? And how may I more faithfully serve you? That is evidence of the kingdom. It looks like children saying, Mom, Dad, what can I do to help around here? That is evidence of the kingdom, my friends. Can those things be mimicked by people who are not believers? Sure. That's why we have laws. We have laws to constrain people to do kingdom-like things because the interior gyroscope of their lives is oriented completely away from the king, and they have to be constrained to do what, in fact, they do not want to do. But a person who is a disciple of Jesus and who follows Jesus, begins to understand the greatness of the grace and the way it's affected and laid hold of me and begun to change me and the final hope that I have. And so I go to mom and I go to dad and I say mom and dad as an evidence of the fact that Jesus is ruling and reigning and I am one of his, how can I help you? Every time a Christian volunteers at GYAC, that is salt and light, that is evidence of the kingdom. Every time a wife in an unhappy marriage perseveres because of love for Christ, that is evidence of the kingdom, that is salt and light. Every time a Christian seeks to build a house for habitat for humanity, that is evidence of the kingdom. Again, can it be mimicked? Absolutely. Every time a person teaches a Sunday school class witnesses the truth of the gospel to an unbeliever. Every time a person in this group gets outside your comfort zone, your comfort level, whatever it is, and you approach someone you don't know and you say, welcome to Christ the King. It's small, but that is an evidence of the kingdom. What does the kingdom look like? It looks like these things. Does the world see it? Does the world recognize it? Does the world give credit to Jesus for it? No. No, but you see the gospel of the king gets hold of us at the deepest places of our souls and it begins to reorient us. And and the the effect of that is we end up doing things that surprise us as well as those around us. Folks, I got to tell you, this is a hard sermon to preach because because I got to go home and live with myself. And I got to go home and live with my wife, which is a burden for her. And I got to go home from this place and this time, and forgive me for going long like I always do. I got to go from this place and not go away from here saying, I've got to be better and I've got to try harder. I've got to go from this place and go home to my place, and be on my face before Jesus and plead with Jesus that he would do a work in me that he alone can do, continuing to reorient me, recalibrate me, continue to rebuild the gyroscope in my soul so that its orientation is in the direction of the king, so that the fruit begins to be seen as salt and light in my life before the watching world. That's what i got to do. That's what we have to do. Plead with God that by his grace, salt and light, these things that we see in Jesus, these things that are this composite description of his disciples, his servants in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, that these things be more and more evident in us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us. Please help us. Help us to think not so much about the economy. Not so much about Tim Mahoney. Not so much about Republicans and Democrats and all of the issues that are before us. God, give us grace to think about ourselves. Give us grace to think about ourselves. To humble ourselves before you, before one another, before mothers and fathers before spouses, before friends, so that more of this character of the citizens of the kingdom might emerge and be evidenced before the the watching world. Lord Jesus, hear our prayers. We make them in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing number 565, All for Jesus. Sing it and by God's grace make it a prayer, a plea to Jesus that this would be true for each of us. Number 565.